correctly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, your gamers roll. www.d20radio.com Roll for initiative. Hello, folks, and Gamer Nation out there listening to the show. This is the Roll for Initiative podcast, issue number nine. I am your host, DM Vince, along with DM Jason and DM Nick. How are you guys doing this week? I'm doing well. This is Nick here. How are y'all doing? Hey, everybody. It's Jason. Doing great. Wow. That was a little quiet. There, That's how we are. That's how we are. That's how we roll <laughs> this week. This week, we got a great show for you, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, satisfy all your first edition craving needs. That's what we're here for, and that's what we're here to try. We try. And let's jump right into sage advice. Greetings, old one. We seek your advice. Excellent. Sit by the fire and we shall talk. Welcome to Sage Advice. So, reaching in the mailbag, we have something from GM Gleno from the D20 Radio Forums. <coughs> Hello, GM Gleno. Hey, Gleno. He says he's doing fine. No, I'm kidding. Uh, the first, <laughs> he has a question. His player in this game used a magic sword to hit a green slime. Yes. The bang, uh, being of metal, the slime should dissolve, or is it immune to what kind of savings throw would we apply to do this? How would we save the sword, he wants to know. Well, I was looking around for answers, and this, the first place I looked was for the green slime itself, and obviously it just doesn't answer it straight up in the monster manual, and I couldn't find a Ecology of the Green Slime article from Dragon. There might be one, but I didn't find one in time. But I don't I recall was, one myself. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was a pretty straightforward thing, though. What I just went ahead and did is went to the saving throw matrix for magical items on uh, page 80 of the Dungeon Master's Guide. Right. And I would absolutely give it a saving throw. I think the idea of making a metal sword immune to green slime just because it's magical would be going over the top. But I agree that there ought to be some kind of uh, save involved. I don't know how yeah, you I, interpret this. I agree. I I looked that up on the same uh, matrix, Jason. You know, sick minds think alike here. Um, <laughs> and I, from the the nature of the creature of the green slime and how it how it reacts, I was like a save versus acid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, it's even pretty close here. They even say a considerable volume of strong acid, black dragon, right. or giant slug spittle. I mean, that seems to fall right into the idea of it. So you get your uh, your base plus two save for being a magic item in itself plus any additional bonuses that the item gets. So it's like if it's a plus one sword, you're going to have plus three to save on that versus acid. For, yeah, and uh, already you've got a really good fart. save. I mean, you've already oh, yeah. got a really good save. It's, it's I think a it's seven. like seven. Yeah, seven. Yeah. yeah, so at that point, if it's... Uh, you know, if it's a plus three sword, you're basically fine from the green slime, which you ought to yeah. be by the time you reach the level that you have a plus three sword. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like a so. According to the matrix, I think it says any magical item is like just base plus two. It could have been like, uh, yeah, you know, maybe uh, a cloak got got green slime on it, for example, 
it still gets a plus two to it, say, because it's magical. Yeah, now the way that I would play it, though, is I wouldn't stop with one save. Uh, personally, I would make the player stop and try to get the green slime off of the sword or off of the armor or the cloak, because if they didn't, I'd call it a continuing save, personally. Not because yeah. I have a really gamed, you know, game mechanic reason behind it, but because I want to see the player waste a bunch of their time in the middle of the combat trying to figure out how to get the slime off without getting right. it on other things. Well, it's only yeah, logical, you know, if the slime's on there, it's going to stay on there until it's taken off. So. Yeah, yeah, I'm so, with you on that one, too. Yeah, burn it off, guys. Burn it off. Not there. Not there. <laughs> not there. <laughs> oh, th- that reminds me of a great story that we had with the green slime one time when uh, we were playing with my, my uh, wonderful group way back in the day. Uh, the green slime landed on the player's helmet. <laughs> and uh, what happened was they tried to get they were trying to get off the character's head, so they put a bucket of water on his head to try to do it, which I don't know why, but <laughs> it made it look it was just stupid. It was a comical thing. And then what happened was we were getting so annoyed the fact that one of the other players just took a lantern and smashed it over his head while it was lit and oh just lit gosh. the character totally on fire. <laughs> one way of getting rid of it, right? <laughs> He's washing his head at us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Okay, well, if you have any questions, you can uh, email us at rfistaff at gmail.com. For your questions, we'll answer them on the air, or you can head over to the website, rfipodcast.com, and we'll head into the Creature Feature Theater. Suddenly, your torch goes out. You fumble around the darkness to relight your torch. When you do, you look up and see the Creature Feature Theater. So what do we have this week, Jason? We have the Rust Monster, a creature that I think most people who are uh, really into the legends and lore of uh, how some of the things were created in AD&D probably already know the story that Gary Gygax modeled the Rust Monster on a little plastic toy that he found, uh, I think, in his son's uh, bucket of toys. Yeah, yes. And... I am pretty sure that I actually had the same toy when I was a kid because I remember noticing it in here and going, hmm. That looks familiar. <laughs> that looks really familiar. I um, think so, but, too. Yeah, I think yeah. I had that same one, one too. Um, but, yeah, so rust monsters are you know, a, a diabolically great invention because yeah. if you're going into a dungeon all – kitted out, you know, with all of your armor and everything. I'm ready for anything. They can't get through this. That's a monster that specifically feeds on what I'm ready for them with. Well, this is a perfect follow-up to last week's monster. What we did was uh, the Disenchanter. Like Nick said, team the two of these guys up, and that's a fearsome combination. Yeah, yeah I did mention that, because I'm a devious DM, and that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So how would you, what kind of a, a situation would you come up with for the two of them to be hanging out? Um... Well, uh, as we talked about uh, last week... Because the Disenchanter is going to be going after the stuff. If the Rust Monster gets to the Magical Shield first, the Disenchanter is going to be all pissed off because he ate his food. True. Well, maybe because the Disenchanter is a more intelligent creature, has average intelligence. Mm -hmm. It could, you know... (laughs) I would just think that maybe it would somehow maybe train the Rust Monster in 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 a certain fashion or... You know, that, that's cool. where I was kind of thinking about. The disenchanter had rust monster minions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, um, you put the two of them together, there'd be a great combination if you want to be a devious DM like uh, DM Nick here. So. <laughs> yeah, this would be one for the druids. 
Yes. That finally the druid kind of picture, has a reason to be. I also kind of picture him, I don't know why, he just seems like one of those, the rust monster is kind of like one of those dungeon cleaning kind of monsters for some reason. Always kind of struck me as that, you know, like with a gelatinous cube or something like that. They kind yeah, of fill like that it. role. I like it. There's sort of an ecology to the dungeon then. They have to have, everything has its purpose. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah this, that's what I was kind of thinking too. This monster that actually is, makes sense for a disenchanter too, then, because if in in, a, in an ecological system, if everything finds its niche, well, in a world where magical items are always getting dropped around, that's its niche. Yeah, maybe. Yep. Yeah, it's your magical control. I noticed this monster was uh, one of the ones that got lost in the uh, later editions. I don't really hear many people talking about it anymore. So yeah. It's kind of got pushed well, into it's, it kind of you know once you leave the idea of a of a uh, human sized world and you start getting into superheroes suddenly it doesn't really work as well if all they're doing is you know taking down your metal items. The yeah. poor rust monster got left out. I, I know it's yeah. like when we used to play it was like you can ru- it's a rust monster. Oh crap! What are we going to do now? These days you don't even hear anything about a rust monster. Yeah, anymore. I know well, it's probably got fourteen different you know feats and 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 automatic <laughs> skills that you don't even have to think about that would just take. Are we going to go down this road? <laughs> no, no, we're not going down that road. <laughs> okay, no. just wondering. Sorry, I, I was I was playing my four E game last night, okay. and so I'm in that mindset a little bit. I'll stop. Okay. <laughs> yes, this is the first edition podcast where we bring you only first. Ed- Addition, good joyness into your homes, not fourth edition. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, if you have any questions or comments about the uh, Ross Monster and how to use it, you can look it up in the Monster Manual because we're not going to go over it in entirety because we know everyone listening to this podcast knows something. What? Something? Excuse me. Something about the Ross Monster already. So. Yeah, it's a classic. Yeah. Got to have it. We just wanted to discuss it really briefly and tell you uh, different ways you can use it in your game. So tell us how you use it in your game, RFI staff gmail.com and we'll head over to plane tips welcome to plane tips so plane tips I've, I've entitled this one no healer no problem this week are you going to have some Bob Marley playing in the background uh, I'm going to try <laughs> no problem man. yeah no problem uh, so this, I came into a recent problem in my group. My group hates playing healers, as I spoke about last week. Nick, we discussed yes. that. So we have no healers in my group. No so problem. Insane. Wait, that's the next segment. Quiet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what do you do in a situation like that? Jason, what's your advice to my group that has no healers other than they're screwed? Yeah, actually, I don't think they're screwed at all because if... Well, it depends how high level you are. I mean, if it's a lower level party, I think they're not as screwed as if it's a higher level party. Okay. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but the reason is at lower levels, your clerics and druids and paladins don't really have that much that they can do on their own anyway. You know, maybe you've got a couple of cure light wounds, but beyond that, what a party really relies on at that level is all of the magic items and potions and those kind of things that come into play. A good low-level party should be searching like crazy for scrolls of healing and spells on you know potions and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. If they're relying on the cleric to heal them, they're going to be spending a lot of time going back to town and waiting a week or two to heal up before going to the next room in the dungeon. Right, and that's where you get into the thing where the cleric is just reduced to the, you know, the level of medic. You know. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think the cleric was ever really meant to be a medic. No, 
it, but but it, it it's a lot of times, and I've seen in my experience, that's where you know the cleric gets you know thrown into. Well, what does your party do, Vince? Well, the party that I'm running the, the campaign for, they actually they are lost completely without healers. They keep going back to town because they. <laughs> <laughs> because the monk in the group is a dope and does stupid stuff. Like, I'll put stuff out just to see if he'll touch it, and he'll touch it. <laughs> I set up this... Does this person listen to the podcast? You just call them stupid. Uh, no, he doesn't, actually. I think he called him a dope. Uh, yeah, dope. I think I called him. But he does it <laughs> all the time. Both. And I have one player in the group that knows what he's doing, another player that's you know pretty much well-educated with D&D, and then we got this dope. <laughs> oh, Okay. <laughs> So they have no cleric, no healer. They don't even have healing potions. They went on the last dungeon crawl that I had with no healing potions. I'm like, dudes, you don't go buy supplies? What's the matter with you guys? Well, what they really did is they brought you a present. They brought you a TPK. (laughs) I'm going to throw the question to you guys. If you were in my group playing, and the group consisted of uh, a thief, a fighter, and a monk, how would you prepare for, say, a dungeon crawl without a healer in your group? I'll throw it to you, Nick, first. Oh, sure. Um, you know, some of the things I would probably do is make sure we had plenty of potions of healing or extra healing. Um, if we can somehow acquire some of those, mm-hmm. uh, if I was on the, uh, the player side, uh, maybe want? some scrolls with some healing spells or like if we're have characters like paladins in the group or druids that are high enough level, they could... You know, maybe compensate for the loss of of healing and some other abilities, like the turning ability of a cleric. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, a, or ultimately, yeah. maybe you can hire one if you have enough well, money. Yeah, that's exactly where I would have gone because it's something that you see happen a lot more with older players, people who have been around, you know, since early days of the game. Is they are more comfortable with taking hirelings and NPCs into yes. things, and yeah. this. That's where I would actually go is say, look, if nobody wants to uh, play a character with any healing abilities and you need to, you do need to have some kind of a medic, so to speak, then yeah. hire one. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it, it comes down to the point that it, if, when it comes to hire them, they won't even bother doing, no, we don't want to waste the gold. And I said, well, then you guys are going to die. Well, then they die. Yes. I mean, <laughs> at some point, they've got to, you got to make sure that they care enough about their characters that they're upset when they die so that you can gently nudge them in the right direction. Well, yeah. last session, that's uh, pretty much what happened because the monk wound up killing himself. <laughs> so they finally <laughs> learned their lesson because he was just, you know, well. Or, you know, this is like that. <laughs> what? Karate chopped himself in the face? Yeah, let's, let's say that, yeah. This is like that movie that you recommended to me, Vince. Oh, yeah, that's right. You did watch that movie, didn't you? Hilarious. What was it called? Darkness Rising? Uh, Gamers, The Darkness Rising. Where the... Was it the monk that kept dying? I forgot. It was the bard. He died like 40-something times. Yeah. Awesome movie. Hilarious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great so, bunch of guys, too. Yeah. So, uh... But but with the hirelings, I mean, yeah, you 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 need to kill them if they're not doing things right. And the but the cool thing about the hirelings is that it gives you as the DM an opportunity to kind of show them how a cleric is really role played. Right. So you know, you say they say, well, we're going to go into town and we're going to hire a cleric to help us out. Well, that cleric's not coming along just for the money. Usually, he's also going to be a cleric from a different 
uh, religion who sees it as a great opportunity to proselytize for his obviously superior god or goddess. Ding, 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 we have a winner. You hit the nail on the head there. So that's how we'd handle it in the group. Sounds like a good idea. Well, You're going to have a lot of fun. You're basically going to be bothering them with Jehovah's Witnesses all day long. Oh, I can just picture it now. <laughs> the and I'm really sorry if there's a Jehovah's Witness listening to the show that is upset with me for stereotyping that, and that's not what I meant, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, tell us uh, how you gosh. handle things in your campaign, how if you don't have a healer or if you do have a healer, let us know, rfistaffgmail.com. Stickler's Spotlight. So, Stickler's Spotlight. Nick, what do we got on the table this week? Insanity. <laughs> and how the insanity rules are in the DMG and how they're handled in D&D. Well, you wrote insanity rules in the show notes, and I interpret that as insanity rules. <laughs> <laughs> That's 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 how it was meant. No, this is AD and D, not Call of Cthulhu. Oh no, okay. it's great. I mean, this section right here is one of the most overlooked, underappreciated, mm-hmm. and completely fun parts of the entire Dungeon Master's Guide. Fun. Really, it's got you've got twenty different kinds of insanity laid out for you, and the, thi- the I play by the book, but there's a line in here that. Uh, I ignore, and that's where uh, Gary Gygax said, you should just go ahead and take over the player's character and just right. run it for them. Yeah, I didn't agree no with that line way. either. Yeah, I, that's put right in my notes. No way. Let them play it out. Let the players I actually do- have different ways of approaching it depending on which insanity we're talking about. Hmm. So uh, let me give you a couple of examples. Some of them I would just say, okay, I'm going to go- take the player character aside and tell him. So, for example, kleptomania. Okay. Yeah. The, you know, he wants to steal. Just go ahead, take him aside and say, listen, you have kleptomania, play it up, have a good time. Mm-hmm. Chances are the player will be happy to do it if you pull him aside because it's like, ooh, something special for me. Oh, totally. You know, uh, a pathological liar, that's a really good one. Yeah. You know, what's funny about this is uh, in my Hackmaster game, part of the character creation when you create your character you get these quirks and flaws mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. some of these types of things are like kleptomania for example that's actually part of your character if you roll it up cool so cool yeah the idea of and i'm i'm on agreement with jason as well it's like i'm on the ideas that depending on the insanity how it is in AD&D, they should be able to role play it out you know like you said oh, pull yeah. them aside or you know, explain, okay, your character is now megalomaniac, and this is, you know, here's an idea how you might want to play it out here. You know, here's how it is in AD&D, so maybe give you some ideas how you might want to role-play that. So, yeah, I'd let okay. the p- players kind of do it. You just actually hit on the next one I was going to go to, which was uh, the places where I wouldn't pull them mm. aside, tell them, and here's what I would do. So for megalomania or the next one, delusional insanity, right. just mm-hmm. to make sure that, you know, these aren't, like it says in the book, these aren't coming straight out of the, uh, uh, whatever, the ape American psychological handbook. They're no. right. game terms. But, uh, so the megalomania is where the insane character is absolutely convinced that they're the best at everything. 
right. uh, you know, why is the strongest, fastest, and delusional insanity, where they're convinced that they're a famous figure like a monarch or a demigod or something. So, what I would actually do is before the game, you know, like on a totally different day, so it doesn't, so it can really sink in. I'd say, listen, something amazing happened after the last thing. You know that magic item that you found? <laughs> it has actually transformed you. You now have all 18 stats. You are you now are a god. <laughs> yeah, I would just tell the player, don't even let him roleplay it. Actually convince the actual player that this has happened. Oh, sneaky. Ooh, when I like that. You just say, you have actually, you've, you've been... You've been melded into the role of King Rama the Ninth, and you know you and him now share all these things. You have inherited all of his treasure. You now are him. Oh, and, that's and awesome! Let, I like that. Yeah, and then all the other players are going to be like, "What are you doing, dude?" <laughs> and you're like, "But you can't tell the others because they don't know." Oh, I thought I was an evil DM. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I like you. <laughs> This reminds me of another great story. Like everyone loves little stories we're hearing there from campaigns. But uh, when uh-huh. playing with the great Joe DM Jason, and yep. uh, he had uh, killed one of our, you know, he was always willing to kill anybody, but you know, killed one of our characters. He came back and he's like, "Well, I'm going to change it up a little bit different. I'm going to go with saying when you got when you came back to life, you're pulled up in insanity." I guess he was into that mood that week. Mm-hmm. So that's how the depressed cleric came about. Oh boy. <laughs> The quest work was, was like this. We emo were, cleric? Yeah, even worse. It was like this. Uh, fifth level, like, I'm dying. Heal me. Why bother? Oh You're God. just going to get hit again. So he had the, the person had to play the character like that the whole entire time. That's so we figured awesome. out a way. Paranoid android. I was just going to say, Marvin is my favorite character of all time from all books. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> Well, aren't you gonna aren't you gonna resurrect him? Why bother? He's just gonna die again anyway. Uh, why should I bother praying? The God's just gonna cut me off. Here I am, power from a god the size of a thousand planets, and they ask me to heal the fighter. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny that you mentioned about the insanity rules. How they are, how they're presented is, I get the impression that, that you really want to play it kind of loose. You know, mm-hmm. it really, and in the way in the that Jason suggested is, you know, having the the players more or less role play the insanities. Uh, you kind of leave it up to the player how they're going to do it, and I like yeah. how they're. They even said these are just guidelines. You know, this is yeah. I mean, they, he gave he gave you twenty different ones so that you'd have something to go off of. It doesn't mean that you can't come in with a different thing, or even add some. Yeah, like, yeah. Look at all the well, different phobias. I'd well, like- there's some of them in here that I actually would take away control from the character, though, because suicidal mania. I mean, I think at that point you kind of have to say, "I'm sorry, this is what's happening." Hmm. Give you it know, to the paladin. I can't think. Nice. Give <laughs> 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 it to the paladin. But you know, there's one in here. I mean, we don't have to go through each one in detail, but no, there's no. one of them, uh, hebephrenia, which. Okay. I don't know, somehow I overlooked it when I was a kid when I was playing the game because later on uh, I was actually, you know, in sort of, I was in this sort of experimental, you know, art rock band thing at one point in my life, you know, in 
after I'd stopped playing D&D back then and before I'd been playing it now, and had independently discovered this uh, type of insanity called hebephrenia. And we did a whole thing all around it because hebephrenia actually manifests itself in this kind of amazing hallucinations and madness that wow. uh, if you spend some time looking it up, you could have a lot of fun with that one. It's, it's the most obscure of the madnesses in here and kind of the most fun one. Because the person, they don't just have hallucinations, but they find everything unbelievably funny. Uh, <laughs> they become, like, some, sometimes they become pranksters, sometimes they become depressed. It's just, it's amazing what happens under it. Dude, so you that just one described four days at Origins without any sleep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So that's when you give it to them. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now, I noticed that this was lost in translation also with the later editions. I can't find insanity rules with a lot of later editions either. Well, it's because it right. requires role-playing. What's that? Yeah. It's because it requires role-playing. Yeah, no one knows how to role-play is what you're saying? <laughs> no, I'm just being a jerk. Okay, okay, break it up, break it up, break yeah. it up, you <laughs> Well, I noticed that when I was playing in a different you know, edition one other night, which we not talk about. Uh, there was no insanity rules because I wanted to actually have a little flavor in my character after he died because of someone mm-hmm. stupid in the group. But uh, I And I was like, well, I'll look at insanity rules. He's like, alright, cool. So we looked it up. We couldn't find it. I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll grab my first edition book. It has a lot of rules in there for it. And he was like, alright, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. yeah. I think it adds a lot of flavor to, to a, a player that, where you stumble across this sort of thing. You know, and it doesn't happen all the time, but I it, it really makes some interesting role-playing situations. Yeah, I mean, some of these are good for just short-term, but some of them are good long-term, you know, like your Hackmaster game, to just turn it into a personality trait. Well, yeah, and that's how it is in, in that particular game. When you create the character, you have the quirks and flaws section, and you roll, you either you could cherry-pick, or you mm-hmm. can roll randomly and see what you get as far as quirks and flaws. Some of them are mental, some of them are physical. But some of the mental ones, you know, are like uh, like jerk or uh, um, like you know, all the different types of mm-hmm. phobias. So that actually is a part of your your player character in that particular game. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, with a lot of these, what you could do with your players is, you know, once your player knows that they've got. Uh, monomania or pathological liar or whichever one you know you've chosen for them and they've figured out how they want to role play it you could set up sort of a secret sign right because the <laughs> whole point is not to tell the whole group hey this player is a pathological liar <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> so you set up some little sign that only you know between you and them so that whenever you feel like it's time for it to kick in you just you know do the pull it tug on your ear or whatever and right. just kind of watch for how long it takes for everybody to pick up on the fact that this has happened. Hmm. Well, how about that's good. You, you you always make up your own. Like say you, I think of a, I just thought of a fun one: sleep anxiety. Fun. Nice. How Which would you one? sleep anxiety? Your player, oh, fear of being going to sleep. Yeah, fear of not being able to fall asleep and then oh, staying up gosh. all night worrying about going to sleep. What happens with your character then? Oh. It's cool because you can start putting in some. You can come up with some. Uh, uh, specific penalties to have happen. You know, eventually your constitution temporarily starts to wane. Yeah. Or your dexterity doesn't do so well. Or your uh, your intelligence might stay high, but your wisdom Wisdom's is temporarily drop. impaired. Yeah. yeah. That's a oh, good yeah. one. Oh, man, that is a real good one. So I have a question for you guys on one, one last one on the insanity rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How... You, 
given what I was saying before about you know trying to kind of force the players into uh, playing it, even though they don't know what's going on, so you know making them really think that they've got uh, you know the powers of a god or something. How about mm-hmm. paranoia? That's I another mean, game. There's, uh, no, <laughs> no, it's a good, that's a great game, but yes. um, you you know how would you, how about actually making the player actually paranoid? I do that anyway in my games. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was doing delusional. My players stuff, fear so. everything, yeah. so I <laughs> fear everything. Yeah. I was doing delusional you could, things. You could last actually time, have so. one of one of your players, you know, be constantly getting these secret things where you're like, somebody is watching you. Yeah. Your, you know, that bag that you've been carrying around. There's sounds coming from it. I think it's got a listening device. <laughs> They're constantly making saving their roles for no reason. They they don't know the reason why. Yes. <laughs> why am I saving for this? Why? <laughs> because you opened the tin of beans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The best role. Was, I'm sorry, go ahead, Jason. No, no, go. I said the best role a GM could do is just say, "Roll me a 20." Yeah. Mm-hmm. And don't strikes fear into them. Just roll me a 20. Why? Just, just roll. <laughs> What'd you get? I got a 12. Okay. Oh, Vince is a devious <laughs> side to him too. Yeah, I, I, I like doing that too every once in a while. Just roll, roll me a 20. Okay. What'd you get? 15. All right, no problem. Anyway, yeah, I, I like to do the little thing behind the screen, you know, where I'm just kind of sitting there while people are doing stuff and, you know, what are you doing? Nothing. I'm just rolling something. Never mind. Nothing. <laughs> nothing happens. Now we're blurring the line between the, the character and the player. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is fun. Yeah, I had a yeah. lot of fun this weekend with uh, one of my players found an intelligent weapon, so I was torturing him with that weapon. Like, I was talking to him, and he couldn't figure it out, and I wouldn't tell him why, so. <laughs> How did you do it? Did, did the voice, like, show up in his mind, or did he know where it was coming from? No, he had no idea. I was just I just kept handing him, like you were saying, handing little notes, like things were happening, like, you hear this. <laughs> you hear this. And he's like, I'm looking around, and everyone's like, What's, what is he doing? And I was like, mm-hmm. let him describe it. And he was just, oh, uh, my character's looking around for some voice, and he's like, so, did you hear that? Did you hear that? And, you know, I was having fun torturing him. And everybody's that. going, right. Back away from the berserker, uh, the fighter. Yeah. <laughs> the, the experienced players had figured it out, what it was. But uh, the newer yeah. player was just like, what? <laughs> what the heck? Oh. You know what? You just reminded me of one other insanity that I forgot about. That was okay. the – now I, I left the page, so I've lost it. It was the one that makes you incredibly strong for a minute. Yes, uh, that would be mania. Yeah. Just regular mania, not schizophrenia, but mania. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting one. So it says here, the insane character will shriek, rave, and behave in a violent manner, possessing a 1850, 1875, or 1800 strength, according to the state he or she is in. Uh, the maniac is unreasoning when spoken to, will possess great cunning, will desire to avoid or to do something appropriate. You know, it's great. You could yeah, actually, last that could for be a, a really, long time, too. Does it? Two to 12 Two turns. Two to 12 turns. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> In the, that would be great because that would be a, both a, you know, a boon and a curse. You know, just yeah. go ahead and visit it on them at the worst and the best times. But you can be a nice DM sometimes, too. You know, in a hopeless situation, suddenly your mania kicks in. <laughs> or it kicks in when you're at the uh, the shop trying to bargain for that sword. You don't get your way. Yeah. Right. 
<laughs> you can't have the sword because it's sticking out of my wife's stomach now. <laughs> yeah, right. Nice. Well, that's tragic. Yeah, that was a little sad. I thought that even as I said it. We'll change it to my landlord. <laughs> okay. Wow. Actually, the sword's free. Here you go. Thank you very much. All right. Much. <laughs> okay, well, um, I think that's going to wrap up Insanity for this week, at least part one of Insanity, because we can go on forever about Insanity. We'll follow, oh, up, a, we'll follow up at a later time with uh, a little more Insanity rules, as Jason has said. I think we'll entitle this episode uh, issue number nine, Insanity Rules. <laughs> yes. If only there were a game completely about Insanity. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, there is. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's... And that's one of my favorite games, too. <laughs> As the party enters the last space inside the cave, a treasure can be seen. So stretch as far as the eye can see. Beware, as you have just entered the Dragon's Hole. Okay, folks, and that's going to bring us into the Dragon's Horde this week, and we have something wonderful and special for you this week in the Dragon's Horde, spelled H-O-A-R-D. Uh, the, <laughs> the Well of Many Worlds. Yes, the Well of Many Worlds. Very interesting magic item here. Uh, it's on page 155 of the DMG. And uh, one of the description I mean, right off in the description of this thing, I thought was interesting. It looks... Same in appearance as a portable hole. So. <laughs> right. That so you're going to be like, awesome, like, I got a portable hole. This is right. the best. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> uh, and goes on in the description that anything placed within it is immediately cast into another world, a parallel earth, another dimension, maybe another plane. Right. And wherever you move this item, the well of many worlds, it changes its inter- interdimensional, interplanar location. So basically, you've got a, a, a mouth to a wormhole here that is so con- complex in dimensions that whatever you do with it actually changes the nature of what it's connected to. Yeah, if you want to look at it yeah, from a scientific point of view, yeah. Well, I don't. I don't necessarily mean to talk about you know the sci-fi side of things. I'm just saying that uh, it's not the same if you get this well of many worlds and you carry it to another place. It doesn't. You just because you it sent you off to the uh, you know the nine hells the first time doesn't mean it'll send you back there the second time. Right, unless you place it in the exact same place where you opened up to that maybe particular plane or dimension. Exactly. Oh, this reminds and, me of uh, those portals from that TV show, Land of the Lost. Yeah, almost. They almost sound like that. Oh, that's cool. Okay, keep going. I'm sorry. Well, I the the way I would probably use this magic item is it also says um, two way street. It's a two way street. Exactly. <laughs> Something can come through. So you know you can you know. You can open it up and, you know, Cthulhu could come out. Um. (laughs) This is actually where it gets pretty cool because we talked a few uh, issues back about a similar – it wasn't a magic item. It was classified as a monster, the Creeping Pit. Right, right. Which could eventually dump you into a different dimension, uh, but it didn't send things back at you. Right. This one can. It has the potential of that. 
And from my from my reading and description, it's really up to the DM how he wants this particular item to work. If there's things that come out from the other side, this also I think could be used as a great trap against uh, like a strong monster or an NPC. It could, but I don't think that I would let a paladin do it. <laughs> and no. here's why. Here's why. I mean, if you let's say you've you've got a paladin and a well of many worlds, and there's a demon, and the paladin knows by getting the demon to go in there, he'll get rid of the demon. Mm -hmm. Right. But he doesn't know where he's sending the demon. He could have just sent him off to a dimension populated entirely by little old ladies and orphans. So that paladin could have just damned him. That poor demon. No, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, that's why I wouldn't let a paladin or anybody lawful good do it without thinking a little bit about the consequences of where True. am I sending this person or thing. True, yeah. but yeah, I but I could also That's see it be used as that sort of thing, how to trap something like a, I don't know, like you said, a demon or some like, you know, some other sort of monster. Have so. you ever read uh, Robert Asprin's um, Myth Adventures? Yes, yes. Okay, yeah, this, that's what this immediately puts me in mind of, because, you know, the, the demons in Myth Adventures, demon stands for dimension traveler. Right. And so a lot of the great stuff happens when somebody not only disappears into one of them, but suddenly appears from another dimension. Hmm. So, I mean, I think it's a great plot device just for bringing in some otherworldly creature that... Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, that, that otherworldly creature could be completely benign, but it's... sure. Just because the difference between the dimensions is so great that the players get it wrong. Yeah. You could build an entire adventure just out of one well of many worlds. Oh, yeah. I could definitely see that as a, a great plot device, like you said. Now, from the other direction, if I were a player, you've mentioned that I might be a devious... <clears throat> excuse me. That I might be a devious <laughs> DM. Yes. Well, not might be, but you are. <laughs> well... <laughs> As my DMs will tell you, I'm also a terribly devious player, always trying to set up stuff that they don't particularly like. <laughs> like oh, the, oh. <laughs> yeah, like in my other game, I think it was like one of the very first things that happened was everybody was fighting over some sort of creature, and I said, well, I've got a bag of holding. I'll just put over his head. The DM <laughs> was not going to have it. Oh, but my gosh. What I would be doing is collecting as many of these things like a well of many worlds and a portable hole as I could until we eventually ran into a creeping pit, throw everything in at once, and just sit back and wait for the DM to work out the physics. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if I'd have you playing in my game because that's the type of stuff (laughs) my players do to me too. No, No, but it would be kind of fun to – actually, there is something I'd like to hear – uh, people's feedback on is what happens if you throw a win- well of many worlds into a creeping pit? Yeah. Uh, what would happen if it get in contact with a sphere of annihilation? Although, you know what? I just realized I'm getting kind of dangerously cr- close to one of the more annoying uh, people that has been kicked off of the Dragon's Foot forums recently for getting a little bit too silly with the rules, so maybe I wouldn't go there. Well. I mean, there's fun, and then there's just, come on, that's stupid. <laughs> Maybe it was, there's, that's when the players say, "Now you're just being an ass." <laughs> yeah, yeah, it could be that. So I still want to know what happens, but maybe I wouldn't do it. Maybe it would become a creeping well. Yeah, I think probably <laughs> a creeping what would really well. <laughs> oh Actually, my god, a creeping well of many worlds. Oh uh, no, that could be dangerous. Yeah. Definitely. 
Well, you know what? It's a, if you've ever wanted to fit, think of a good way to get your players into the adventure, uh, Baba Yaga's hut, there'd be a good yes. way to send them in. Ooh, yeah, true. Yeah, and I hope my players aren't listening because that's I've <laughs> got to get them into that adventure at some point. Best adventure ever published in Dragon Magazine, in my opinion. But hmm. we'll have to take a look at that then for for a future issue. Well, actually, there you go for a future Blackstone's Vault. That's my request to you as the DJ is... Okay. Could you review Baba Yaga's Dancing Hut? I have it. I have it. It's great. Yes, it is. The tank. (laughs) (laughs) I remember the tank. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll want to see how you would handle it, and uh, maybe you want to answer Jason's question, what happens if we take the Well of Many Worlds and put it in a creeping pit and tell us what happens, you know, Make up your discovery and send it to us, rfistaff at gmail.com. And we'll be back right after this. Hello, and welcome again to another edition of Blackstone's Vault. I'm your host, Blackstone, and this is a second part of a three-part series of modules, the U-Series, and it's module U2, Danger at Dunwater, by Dave J. Brown and Don Turnbull. And the recommended levels are 1 through 4. Okay, a little bit about this adventure. Taking up from module U1, uh, the plot does get a little more complex. And it's probably best if I read it out of the appendix of module U2. A colony of lizardmen had recently re-established possession of a lizardman stronghold previously abandoned many years before. The lizardmen are also known to have brought large quantities of weapons from a gang of smugglers, who were also, before the gang was routed, smuggling contraband goods to Saltmarsh. The members of the Saltmarsh Town Council are fearful of these developments, lest their own little fishing town is to be targeted of the aggression for which the Lizardmen are obviously preparing. They approach a party of adventurers and ask for aid in ridding the Saltmarsh of the menace. Unknown to the Town Council and to the adventurers, the Lizardmen are not planning an attack on Saltmarsh. Rather, they are anxious to rid the area of the menace posed by an invading horde of Sahuagin. To this end, the Lizardmen are negotiating with several other tribes of Mermen, Coenlinth, and Locantha to gain allies in the struggle to come. The problems facing the Lizardmen could possibly be amplified by internal dissent, though as yet this dissent has not come out into the open. Some of the Lizardmen in the colony do not agree with the idea of allying with other races, even in the face of a Sahuagin threat, since they hold this in contrary to the teachings of their god, Simu'anya. These dissenters dare not oppose their chief yet, but if his authority and that of his senior officers were removed, they would make their feelings known in no uncertain manner. And that's the basic plot. Uh, there's also a reward of 5,000 gold pieces for the adventuring party if they uh, find out what the Lizardmen are up to. Alright, so that's the basic plot. Uh, NPCs in this, uh, there's quite a few, and uh, surprisingly enough, it's primarily Lizardmen. You have the two factions. There's a pro-alliance faction and an anti-alliance faction. The pro-alliance faction is the chief 
the sub-chief, his warriors, and the lizard man minister, who's the most influential to the chief. And if he's eliminated, it could definitely turn the tide for the anti-alliance faction. Now, the anti-alliance faction is basically the, uh, the clerical, the shamans. We have the chief shaman and his senior shaman, all the other ones as well. Plus, all the females are on the anti-alliance faction. So you have those two sides vying for power in the Lizardmen lair of who they should ally with or should they ally with anybody at all. Um, some of the major encounters in this, uh, basically you have an overland uh, trek to the Lizardman lair. Uh, on there, there's a random encounter table, some snakes, giant leeches, giant frogs, some crocodiles. So you have that encounter table plus a preset one of a bullywug ambush of about 25 bullywugs. Now the other way you can get to there is by sea. Now kind of dovetailing to the previous adventure. Now it is assumed that you're going to go ahead by land, but you could go by sea. In the module, they recommend that you hire some people out of the town to uh, take some smaller boats, and you can go that way. Um, it's not encouraged to use the Sea Ghost, even if you captured it. And it even goes the way that uh, the DM should you know, make them run the ship aground or something like that. And I'll get into that a little bit later, how I handled that. And there are no encounter encounters as written for a seaborne uh, adventure on the way there. Now, as far as the lair is concerned, of course, there's hordes of lizardmen. You got the warriors, the shamans, the females. There's actually a funny little section there of some two younglings, a male and a female youngling, that if they're about four years old, human age, and if they run into the uh, adventuring party, they will uh, kind of tag along with them, so they can kind of be annoying, but a little funny, too. And you also have uh, the minister who does speak the common tongue is rather intelligent. If you confront him, if you meet up with him, um, he will probably be more curious than scared of the adventuring party. Uh, you also have the temple to Semuanya in there. There's a harem of lizardmen women, uh, the royal hatchery. There's some giant lizards. There's also an imprisoned Sahuagin, so that would maybe clue the PCs if they run into that thing in the lair uh, what might actually be going on. And also the emissaries from the Mermen, the Locantha, and the Koalinth. So that's pretty much the, the lair itself. Now the good stuff. It's got really good maps in here. There's also a list of pre-generated player characters. But what's most interesting about this is the complex plot that does evolve in this particular module. There is that possibility of an alliance with the humans, but it would be a tenuous one at, at most because they don't really consider humans part of the fight against the Sahuagin. Now, also there's a little twist with uh, Oceanus. If he is with the party, um, they, apparently the Coalinth and the Aquatic Elves do not get along at all. There's some animosity between the two races. So, Maybe if you can handle it well, if you learn how to speak uh, Aquatic Elf or teach some common to Oceanus, could either be a help or hindrance. Also, there's some 
many details. There's many details on what with the Lizardman Anti-Alliance faction wins out. Uh, also with the Lizardman Pro-Alliance faction wins. What would that happen there? Um, if you do make peace with the Lizardmen, they will send emissaries back with the player character party back to Saltmarsh and um, negotiate with them, but they will demand reparations for any Lizardmen, warriors, uh, females, eggs, whatever. About 10 gold piece a pop right there. Now, if you refuse to pay, if the player characters refuse to play, the pay, now there is, in this one, an option of how they can, you know, make amends with the Lizardmen. Now there is a lair of uh, Oriental Dragon nearby the Lizardmen that is causing some trouble. A uh, Pang, Panloon Dragon who has charmed a giant crocodile with his uh, special abilities. And uh, if the player characters can, they will go to the lair of the dragon, defeat it and its crocodile companion if possible. And that would be as good as paying reparations to the Lizardmen. Also, what if your party, <laughs> and I'm sure this has happened to many, what if they just go in and hack and slash and destroy everything in the lair, in the Lizardman lair? Well, there's even details in the concluding notes of what to do if that happens. So he could go on to Module U3, the final enemy. So, as I said, they've taken every consideration, every scenario uh, into consideration here. So there's a lot for a DM to read, digest here, and so I don't think a DM would be lacking in any sort of material here. Now some of the not so good stuff, uh, the thing about the Sea Ghost, how the module is written to discourage the players from using the Sea Ghost. Well, you know what? If they want to use it, fine. Um, also. There's no water encounters. Well, that's easily done. You can make up your own waterborne encounter table in that case. Um, and that's how I ran it. And as far as the other opinions here, how I ran the thing, the actions of the PCs will determine which faction wins. Basically, how far you get into the Lizardmen lair and which way you turn and who you fight is going to be pivotal in the final... Uh, negotiations on who is going to be in alliance with humans or not. So, and how it happened in my uh, group is when I DM'd it not too long ago, they went in, fought the giant lizards, went through, um, and went the right path, basically, to kill the head shaman, a couple of his uh, uh, leaders. So, when it came to negotiations, it wasn't that bad. They still didn't want to pay the reparations, and they went on to fight in the Oriental Dragon Lair. But that's how it kind of plays out, and it could go the other way, too. Also, if the PCs want to use the uh, uh, Sea Ghost, I would say, you know, they could hire a crew for the Sea Ghost in Saltmarsh. I mean, that would work. Or, if you want to, uh, maybe use some of those secondary skills in the DMG, I believe, on page 12 of the DMG. Or you can use, uh, is when you get at least with the Waterborne, when you get on ship and you head towards there, you can use the uh, Wilderness Survival Guide, page 44 through 46. So you can use that to help out there too if you wish. Also, the Fiendfolio will be needed because of 
the Bullywugs and the Oriental Dragon. Now, where can you find this module? Uh, you can find it on eBay in a wide range of prices, right from a starting bid of 99 cents up to a buy it now price of 24.95. And of course, you can check all your other conventions out there. But uh, that's it in a nutshell about U2 uh, Danger at Dunwater. This one can either be A, a hack and slash thing, or B, lots of role playing opportunities. So it could be handled either way. Uh, until then, I will cover the last module, the final enemy, in this in the next segment. So until then, this is Blackstone signing off and wishing all your hits are crits. Well, guys, I think that's going to put another wrap on the show this week. Or the issue, I should say. <laughs> we were having so much fun. Yeah. Jason? We're so glad we had this time together. <laughs> I knew I was going to start with the singing. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> I could put some Happy Trails music in there if you want, you know. Dum-ba-dee-da-bum-ba. Hey, we, we can't afford the rights. That, yeah, that's true. Don't, okay, don't I'll just... I'll stop it there. <laughs> Already we owe Bob Marley's estate. We owe yeah. Gordon Rogers' uh, estate. I don't think that I'm going to have to go out and get a second job for this. Yeah. All right, folks. Well, we're, we're glad to have brought you another episode this week, and we'll be back uh, in our regular schedule next week. So uh, we're sorry about the delays. We just had some technical problems, and we're over that. So this is going to wrap up Issue 9. I am your host, DM Vince. Keeping it original, keeping it old school. Goodbye. <laughs> Night. <laughs> for initiative insanity rules <laughs> <laughs>